0: Chapter thirty three of that Affair Next Door This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter thirty three Known Known All Known Mr Grice possesses one faculty for which I envy him and that is his skill in the management of people he had not been in miss althorpe's house five minutes before he had won her confidence and had everything he wished at his command i had to talk some time before getting so far but he a word and a look did it miss oliver for whom i hesitated to inquire lest i should again find her gone or in a worse condition than when i left was in reality better and as we went upstairs I allowed myself to hope that the questions which had so troubled us would soon be answered and the mystery ended. But mr Gryce evidently knew better, for when we reached her door he turned and said, Our task will not be an easy one. Go in first and attract her attention so that I can enter unobserved. I wish to study her before addressing her, but mind no words about the murder. Leave that to me. I nodded, feeling that I was falling back into my own place, and, knocking softly, entered the room. A maid was sitting with her. Seeing me, she rose and advanced, saying, Miss Oliver is sleeping. Then I will relieve you, I returned, beckoning Mr. Gryce to come in. The girl left us, and we too contemplated the sick woman silently. Presently I saw Mr. Gryce shake his head, but he did not tell me what he meant by it. Following the direction of his finger, I sat down in a chair at the head of the bed. He took his station at the side of it in a large armchair he saw there. As he did so, I saw how fatherly and kindly he really looked, and wondered if he was in the habit of so preparing himself to meet the eye of all the suspected criminals he encountered. The thought made me glance again her way. She lay like a statue, and her face, naturally round, but now thinned out and hollow looked up from the pillow in pitiful quiet the long lashes accentuating the dark places under her eyes a sad face the saddest i ever saw and one of the most haunting he seemed to find it so also for his expression of benevolent interest deepened with every passing moment till suddenly she stirred Then he gave me a warning glance, and stooping, took her by the wrist and pulled out his watch. She was deceived by the action, opening her eyes, surveying him languidly for a moment, then heaving a great sigh, turned aside her head. Don't tell me I am better, doctor. I do not want to live. The plaintive tone, the refined accent, seemed to astonish him. Laying down her hand, he answered gently, I do not like to hear that from such young lips. But it assures me that I was correct in my first surmise, that it is not medicine you need, but a friend. And I can be that friend if you will but allow me. Moved, encouraged for an instant, she turned her head from side to side, probably to see if they were alone, and, not observing me, answered softly, You are very good, very thoughtful, doctor, but-and here her despair returned again-it is useless. You can do nothing for me. You think so, remonstrated the old detective, but you do not know me, child. Let me show you that I can be of benefit to you. And he drew from his pocket a little package, which he opened before her astonished eyes. Yesterday in your delirium you left these rings in an office downtown. As they are valuable I have brought them back to you. Wasn't I right, my child? No, no, she started up, and her accents betrayed terror and anguish. I do not want them, I cannot bear to see them. They do not belong to me, they belong to them. To them? Whom do you mean by them? queried Mr. Gryce insinuatingly. The the Van Burnhams? Is not that the name? Oh, do not make me talk, I am so weak, only take the rings back. I will, child, I will. Mr. Gryce's voice was more than fatherly now, it was tender, really and sincerely tender. I will take them back, but to which of the brothers shall I return them? To, he hesitated softly, to Franklin or to Howard? I expected to hear her respond, his manner was so gentle and apparently sincere. But though feverish and on the verge of wildness, she had still some command over herself, and after giving him a look, the intensity of which called out a corresponding expression on his face, she faltered out, I, I don't care, I don't know either of the gentlemen, but to the one you call Howard, I think. The pause which followed was filled by the tap-tap of Mr. Gryce's finger on his knee. That is the one who is in custody, he observed at last. The other, that is Franklin, has gone scot-free thus far, I hear. No answer from her close-shut lips. He waited. Still no answer. "If you do not know either of these gentlemen," he insinuated at last, "how did you come to leave the rings at their office?" "I knew their names, I inquired my way. It is all a dream now. Please do not ask me questions. Oh, doctor, do you not see I cannot bear it?" He smiled-I never could smile like that under any circumstances-and softly patted her hand. "I see it makes you suffer," he acknowledged. "'but I must make you suffer in order to do you any good. "'If you will tell me all you know about these rings,' "'she passionately turned her head away, "'I might hope to restore you to health and happiness. "'You know with what they are associated,' "'she made a slight motion, "'and that they are an invaluable clue to the murder of Mrs. Van Burnham. "'Another motion. "'How, then, my child, did you come to have them?' her head which was rolling to and fro on the pillow stopped and she gasped rather than uttered i was there he knew this yet it was terrible to hear it from her lips she was so young and had such an air of purity and innocence but more heart-rendering yet was the groan with which she burst forth in another moment as if impelled by conscience to unburden herself from some overwhelming load i took them i could not help it but i did not keep them you know that i did not keep them i am no thief doctor whatever i am i am no thief yes yes i see that but why take them child what were you doing in that house and whom were you with she threw up her arms and made no reply will you not tell he urged a short silence then a low no evidently wrung from her by the deepest anguish mr gryce heaved a sigh the struggle was likely to be a more serious one than he had anticipated miss oliver said he more facts are known in relation to this affair than you imagine though unsuspected at first it has secretly been proven that the man who accompanied the woman into the house where the crime took place was franklin van Burnham. "'A low gasp from the bed, and that was all. "'You know this to be correct, don't you, Miss Oliver? "'Oh, must you ask? "'She was writhing now, and I thought he must desist out of pure compassion. "'But detectives are made out of very stern stuff, "'and though he looked sorry he went inexorably on. "'Justice and a sincere desire to help you force me, my child.' were you not the woman who entered mr van Burnham's house at midnight with this man i entered the house at midnight yes and with this man silence you do not speak miss oliver again silence it was franklin who was with you at the hotel d she uttered a cry and it was franklin who connived at your change of clothing there and advised or allowed you to dress yourself in a new suit from Altman's oh she cried again then why should it not have been he who accompanied you to the chinaman's and afterwards took you in a second hack to the house in Gramercy Park known known all known was her moan sin and crime cannot long remain hidden in this world miss oliver the police are acquainted with all your movements from the moment you left the hotel d that is why i have compassion on you i wish to save you from the consequences of a crime you saw committed but in which you took no hand oh she exclaimed in one involuntary burst as she half rose to her knees if you could save me from appearing in the matter at all if you would let me run away "'but Mr. Gryce was not the man to give her hope on any such score. "'Impossible, Miss Oliver. "'You are the only person who can witness for the guilty. "'If I should let you go, the police would not. "'Then why not tell at once "'whose hands drew the hat-pin from your hat and— "'Stop!' she shrieked. "'Stop! You kill me! I cannot bear it. "'If you bring that moment back to my mind, I shall go mad!' i feel the horror of it rising in me now be still i pray you for god's sake to be still this was mortal anguish there was no acting in this even he was startled by the emotion he had raised and sat for a moment without speaking then the necessity of providing against all further mistakes by fixing the guilt where it belonged drove him on again and he said Like many another woman before you, you are trying to shield a guilty man at your own expense. But it is useless, Miss Oliver. The truth always comes to light. Be advised, then, and make a confidant of one who understands you better than you think. But she would not listen to this. No one understands me. I do not understand myself. I only know that I shall make a confidant of no one that I shall never speak and turning from him she buried her head in the bedclothes. To most men her tone and the action which accompanied it would have been final, but Mr. Grice possessed great patience. Waiting for just a moment till she seemed more composed, he murmured gently, "'Not if you must suffer more from your silence than from speaking? "'Not if men—I do not mean myself, child, for I am your friend—' will think that you are to blame for the death of the woman whom you saw fall under a cruel stab and whose rings you have? I Her horror was unmistakable. So were her surprise, her terror, and her shame. But she added nothing to the word she had uttered, and he was forced to say again. The world, and by that I mean both good people and bad, will believe all this. He will let them believe all this. Men have not the devotion of women. Alas, alas! It was a murmur rather than a cry, and she trembled so the bed shook visibly under her, but she made no response to the entreaty in his look and gesture, and he was compelled to draw back unsatisfied. When a few heavy minutes had passed, he spoke again, this time in a tone of sadness. Few men are worth such sacrifices, Miss Oliver, and a criminal never. But a woman is not moved by that thought. She should be moved by this, however. If either of these brothers is to blame in this matter, consideration for the guiltless one should lead you to mention the name of the guilty. But even this did not visibly affect her. I shall mention no names, said she. A sign will answer. I shall make no sign. Then Howard must go to his trial? a gasp, but no words. And Franklin proceed on his way undisturbed. She tried not to answer, but the words would come. Pray, God, I may never see such a struggle again. That is as God wills. I can do nothing in the matter. And she sank back crushed and well-nigh insensible. Mr. Gryce made no further effort to influence her. End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 Exactly half-past three She is more unfortunate than wicked, was Mr. Grice's comment, as we stepped into the hall. Nevertheless, watch her closely, for she is in just the mood to do herself a mischief. In an hour, or at the most two, I shall have a woman here to help you. You can stay till then? All night, if you say so that you must settle with miss althorpe as soon as miss oliver is up i shall have a little scheme to propose by means of which i hope to arrive at the truth of this affair i must know which of these two men she is shielding then you think she did not kill mrs van Burnham herself i think the whole matter one of the most puzzling mysteries that has ever come to the notice of the new york police we are sure that the murdered woman was mrs Van Burnham, that this girl was present at her death, and that she availed herself of the opportunity afforded by that death to make the exchange of clothing which has given such a complicated twist to the whole affair. But beyond these facts we know little more than that it was Franklin Van Burnham who took her to the Gramercy Park house and Howard, who was seen in the same vicinity some two or four hours later. But on which of these two to fix the responsibility of Mrs. Van Burnham's death is the question. She had a hand in it herself, I persisted, though it may have been without evil intent. No man ever carried that thing through without feminine help. To this opinion I shall stick, much as this girl draws upon my sympathies. I shall not try to persuade you to the contrary, but the point is to find out how much help, and to whom it was given. And your scheme for doing this? Cannot be carried out till she is on her feet again. So cure her, Miss Butterworth, cure her. When she can go downstairs, Ebenezer Grice will be on the scene to test his little scheme. I promised to do what I could, and when he was gone I set diligently to work to soothe the child, as he had called her, and get her in trim for the delicate meal which had been sent up. And whether it was owing to a change in my own feelings, or whether the talk with Mr. Grice had so unnerved her that any womanly ministration was welcome, she responded much more readily to my efforts than ever before, and in a little while lay in so calm and grateful a mood that I was actually sorry to see the nurse when she came. Hoping that something might spring from an interview with Miss Althorpe, whereby my departure from the house might be delayed, I descended to the library, and was fortunate enough to find the mistress of the house there. She was sorting invitations, and looked anxious and worried. You see me in a difficulty, Miss Butterworth. I had relied on Miss Oliver to oversee this work, as well as to assist me in a great many other details, and I don't know of any one whom I can get on short notice, to take her place. My own engagements are many, and, Let me help you, I put in, with that cheerfulness her presence invariably inspires. I have nothing pressing calling me at home, and for once in my life I should like to take an active part in wedding festivities. It would make me feel quite young again. But, she began, Oh, I hasten to say, You think I would be more of a hindrance to you than a help, that I would do the work perhaps but in my own way rather than in yours. Well, that would doubtless have been true of me a month since, but I have learned a great deal in the last few weeks. You will not ask me how. And now I stand ready to do your work in your way, and to take a great deal of pleasure in it, too. Ah, Miss Butterworth! she exclaimed with a burst of genuine feeling which I would not have lost for the world. I always knew that you had a kind heart, and I am going to accept your offer in the same spirit in which it is made. So that was settled, and with it the possibility of my spending another night in this house. At ten o'clock I stole away from the library and the delightful company of Mr. Stone, who had insisted upon sharing my labors, and went up to Miss Oliver's room. I met the nurse at the door. You want to see her? said she. She's asleep, but does not rest very easily. I don't think I ever saw so pitiful a case. She moans continually, but not with physical pain. Yet she seems to have courage, too. For now and then she starts up with a loud cry. Listen. I did so, and this is what I heard. I do not want to live. Doctor, I do not want to live. Why do you try to make me better? that is what she is saying all the time sad isn't it i acknowledged it to be so but at the same time wondered if the girl were not right in wishing for death as a relief from her troubles early the next morning i inquired at her door again miss oliver was better her fever had left her and she wore a more natural look than at any time since i had seen her but it was not an untroubled one, and it was with difficulty I met her eyes when she asked if they were coming for her that day, and if she could see Miss Althorpe before she left. As she was not yet able to leave her bed I could easily answer her first question, but I knew too little of Mr. Grice's intentions to be able to reply to the second. But I was easy with this suffering woman, very easy. MORE EASY THAN I EVER SUPPOSED I COULD BE WITH ANYONE SO INTIMATELY ASSOCIATED WITH A CRIME. SHE SEEMED TO ACCEPT MY EXPLANATIONS AS READILY AS SHE ALREADY HAD MY PRESENCE, AND I WAS STRUCK AGAIN WITH SURPRISE AS I CONSIDERED THAT MY NAME HAD NEVER AROUSED IN HER THE LEAST EMOTION. Miss Althorpe has been so good to me I should like to thank her. From my despairing heart I should like to thank her. She said to me as I stood by her side before leaving, Do you know, she went on, catching me by the dress as I was turning away, what kind of a man she is going to marry? She has such a loving heart, and marriage is such a fearful risk. Fearful, I repeated. Is it not fearful to give one's whole soul to a man and be met by? I must not talk of it, I must not think of it. But is he a good man? Does he love Miss Althorpe? Will she be happy? I have no right to ask, perhaps, but my gratitude towards her is such that I wish her every joy and pleasure. Miss Althorpe has chosen well, I rejoined. Mr. Stone is a man in ten thousand. The sigh that answered me went to my heart. I will pray for her, she murmured. That will be something to live for. I did not know what reply to make to this everything which this girl said and did was so unexpected and so convincing in its sincerity that I felt moved by her even against my better judgment. I pitied her, and yet I dared not urge her on to speak, lest I should fail in my task of making her well. I therefore confined myself to a few haphazard expressions of sympathy and encouragement, and left her in the hands of the nurse. The next day Mr. Grice called your patient is better said he much better was my cheerful reply this afternoon she will be able to leave the house very good have her down at half past three and i will be in front with the carriage i dread it i cried but i will have her there you are beginning to like her miss butterworth take care you will lose your head if your sympathies become engaged it sits pretty firmly on my shoulders yet I retorted and as for sympathies you are full of them yourself i saw how you looked at her yesterday bah my looks you cannot deceive me mr grice you are as sorry for the girl as you can be and so am i too by the way i do not think i should speak of her as a girl for something she said yesterday i am convinced she is a married woman and that her husband Well, madam, I will not give him a name, at least not before your scheme has been carried out. Are you ready for the undertaking? I will be this afternoon at half-past three she is to leave the house, not a minute before and not a minute later. Remember. End of chapter 34 Chapter 35 of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter 35 A Ruse. It was a new thing for me to enter into any scheme blindfold but the past few weeks had taught me many lessons and among them to trust a little in the judgment of others accordingly i was on hand with my patient at the hour designated and as i supported her trembling steps down the stairs i endeavored not to betray the intense interest agitating me or to awaken by my curiosity any further dread in her mind than that involved by her departure from this home of bounty and good feeling and her entrance upon an unknown and possibly much to be apprehended future mr gryce was awaiting us in the lower hall and as he caught sight of her slender figure and anxious face his whole attitude became at once so protecting and so sympathetic i did not wonder at her failure to associate him with the police as she stepped down to his side he gave her a genial nod I am glad to see you so far on the road to recovery, he remarked. It shows me that my prophecy is correct, and that in a few days you will be quite yourself again. She looked at him wistfully. You seem to know so much about me, doctor. Perhaps you can tell me where they are going to take me. He lifted a tassel from a curtain nearby, looked at it, shook his head at it, and inquired quite irrelevantly. Have you been good-bye to Miss Althorpe? Her eyes stole towards the parlours, and she whispered, as if half in awe of the splendour everywhere surrounding her, "'I have not had the opportunity, but I should be sorry to go without a word of thanks for her goodness. Is she at home?' The tassel slipped from his hand. "'You will find her in a carriage at the door. She has an engagement out this afternoon, but wishes to say good-bye to you before leaving.' oh how kind she is burst from the girl's white lips and with a hurried gesture she was making for the door when mr gryce stepped before her and opened it two carriages were drawn up in front neither of which seemed to possess the elegance of so rich a woman's equipage but mr gryce appeared satisfied and pointing to the nearest one observed quietly you are expected if she does not open the carriage door for you do not hesitate to do it yourself she has something of importance to say to you miss oliver looked surprised but prepared to obey him steadying herself by the stone balustrade she slowly descended the steps and advanced towards the carriage i watched her from the doorway and mr gryce from the vestibule it seemed an ordinary situation but something in the latter's face convinced me that interests of no small moment depended upon the interview about to take place. But before I could decide upon their nature or satisfy myself as to the full meaning of Mr. Gryce's manner, she had started back from the carriage door and was saying to him in a tone of modest embarrassment, "'There is a gentleman in the carriage. You must have made some mistake.' mr gryce who had evidently expected a different result from his stratagem hesitated for a moment during which i felt that he read her through and through then he responded lightly i made a mistake eh oh possibly look in the other carriage my child with an unaffected air of confidence she turned to do so and i turned to watch her for i began to understand the scheme at which i was assisting and foresaw that the emotion she had failed to betray at the door of the first carriage might not necessarily be lacking on the opening of the second i was all the more assured of this from the fact that miss althorpe's stately figure was very plainly to be seen at the moment not in the coach miss oliver was approaching but in an elegant victoria just turning the corner My expectations were realized, for no sooner had the poor girl swung open the door of the second hack than her whole body succumbed to a shock so great that I expected to see her fall in a heap on the pavement. But she steadied herself up with a determined effort, and with a sudden movement full of subdued fury, jumped into the carriage and violently shut the door, just as the first carriage drove off to give place to Miss Althorpe's turnout. sprang from mr gryce's lips in a tone so full of varied emotions that it was with difficulty i refrained from rushing down the stoop to see for myself who was the occupant of the coach into which my late patient had so passionately precipitated herself but the sight of miss althorpe being helped to the ground by her attendant lover recalled me so suddenly to my own anomalous position on her stoop that i let my first impulse pass and concerned myself instead with the formation of those apologies i thought necessary to the occasion but those apologies were never uttered mr gryce with the infinite tact he displays in all serious emergencies came to my rescue and so distracted miss althorpe's attention that she failed to observe that she had interrupted a situation of no small moment meanwhile the coach containing miss oliver had had a signal from the wary detective drawn off in the wake of the first one and i had the doubtful satisfaction of seeing them both roll down the street without my having penetrated the secret of either a glance from mr stone who had followed miss althorpe up the stoop interrupted mr gryce's flow of eloquence and a few minutes later i found myself making those adieux which i had hoped to avoid by departing in miss althorpe's absence another instant, and I was hastening down the street, in the direction taken by the two carriages, one of which had paused at the corner a few rods off. But, spry as I am for one of my settled habits and sedate character, I found myself passed by Mr. Gryce, and when I would have accelerated my steps, he darted forward quite like a boy, and without a word of explanation, or any acknowledgment of the mutual understanding which certainly existed between us, leapt into the carriage I was endeavouring to reach, and was driven away, but not before I caught a glimpse of Miss Oliver's grey dress inside. Determined not to be baffled by this man, I turned about and followed the other carriage. It was approaching a crowded part of the avenue, and in a few minutes I had the gratification of seeing it come to a standstill only a few feet from the curbstone. The opportunity thus afforded me, of satisfying my curiosity, was not to be slighted. Without pausing to consider consequences or to question the propriety of my conduct, I stepped boldly up in front of its half-lowered window and looked in. There was but one person inside, and that person was Franklin Van Burnham what was i to conclude from this that the occupant of the other carriage was howard and that mr gryce now knew with which of the two brothers miss oliver's memories were associated end of chapter thirty five end of book three book four the end of a great mystery chapter thirty six the result i was as much surprised at this result of mr gryce's scheme as he was and possibly I was more chagrined. But I shall not enter into my feelings on the subject, or weary you any further with my conjectures. You will be much more interested, I know, in learning what occurred to Mr. Grice upon entering the carriage holding Miss Oliver. He had expected from the intense emotion she displayed at the sight of Howard Van Burnham, for I was not mistaken as to the identity of the person occupying the carriage with her to find her flushed with the passions incident upon this meeting, and her companion in a condition of mind which would make it no longer possible for him to deny his connection with this woman and his consequently guilty complicity in a murder to which both were linked by so many incriminating circumstances. But for all his experience the detective was disappointed in this expectation as he had been in so many others connected with this case there was nothing in miss oliver's attitude to indicate that she had unburdened herself of any of the emotions with which she was so grievously agitated nor was there on mr van burnham's part any deeper manifestation of feeling than a slight glow on his cheek and even that disappeared under the detective's scrutiny leaving him as composed and imperturbable as he had been in his memorable inquisition before the coroner disappointed and yet in a measure exhilarated by this sudden check in plans he had thought too well laid for failure mr gryce surveyed the young girl more carefully and saw that he had not been mistaken in regard to the force or extent of the feelings which had driven her into mr van burnham's presence and turning back to that gentleman was about to give utterance to some very pertinent remarks, when he was forestalled by mr Van Burnham inquiring, in his old calm way, which nothing seemed able to disturb, Who is this crazy girl you have forced upon me? If I had known I was to be subjected to such companionship, I should not have regarded my outing so favorably. Mr Gryce, who never allowed himself to be surprised by anything a suspected criminal might do or say, surveyed him quietly for a moment then turned towards miss oliver you hear what this gentleman calls you said he her face was hidden by her hands but she dropped them as the detective addressed her showing a countenance so distorted by passion that it stopped the current of his thoughts and made him question whether the epithet bestowed upon her by their somewhat callous companion was entirely unjustified But soon the something else, which was in her face, restored his confidence in her sanity, and he saw that while her reason might be shaken, it was not yet dethroned, and that he had good cause to expect sooner or later some action from a woman whose misery could wear an aspect of such desperate resolution. That he was not the only one affected by the force and desperate character of her glance became presently apparent for Mr. Van Burnham, with a more kindly tone than he had previously used, observed quietly, I see the lady is suffering. I beg pardon for my inconsiderate words. I have no wish to insult the unhappy. Never was Mr. Grice so nonplussed. There was a mingled courtesy and composure in the speaker's manner, which was as far removed as possible from the strained effort at self-possession which marks suppressed passion or secret fear while in the vacant look with which she met these words there was neither anger nor scorn nor indeed any of the passions one would expect to see there the detective consequently did not force the situation but only watched her more and more attentively till her eyes fell and she crouched away from them both then he said you can name this gentleman can you not miss oliver even if he does not choose to recognize you?' But her answer, if she made one, was inaudible, and the sole result which Mr. Grice obtained from this venture was a quick look from Mr. Van Burnham, and the following uncompromising words from his lips. "'If you think this young girl knows me, or that I know her, you are greatly mistaken. She is as much of a stranger to me as I am to her, and I take this opportunity of saying so i hope my liberty and good name are not to be made dependent upon the word of a miserable waif like this your liberty and your good name will depend upon your innocence retorted mr grice and said no more feeling himself at a disadvantage before the imperturbability of this man and the silent non-accusing attitude of this woman from the shock of whose passions he had anticipated so much and obtained so little meantime they were moving rapidly towards police headquarters and fearing that the sight of that place might alarm miss oliver more than was well for her he strove again to rouse her by a kindly word or so but it was useless she evidently tried to pay attention and follow the words he used but her thoughts were too busy over the one great subject that engrossed her "A bad case," murmured mr Van Burnham, and with the phrase seemed to dismiss all thought of her. "A bad case," echoed mr Gryce, but, seeing how fast the look of resolution was replacing her previous aspect of frenzy, one that will do mischief yet to the man who has deceived her. The stopping of the carriage roused her. Looking up, she spoke for the first time. "I want a police officer," she said. Mr. Gryce, with all his assurance restored, leaped to the ground and held out his hand. "'I will take you into the presence of one,' said he, and she, without a glance at Mr. Van Burnham, whose knee she brushed in passing, leaped to the ground and turned her face towards police headquarters. End of chapter 36 chapter 37 of that affair next door this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read for you today by don larsen in minnesota that affair next door by anna k green chapter 37 two weeks but before she was well in her countenance changed No, said she. I want to think first. Give me time to think. I dare not say a word without thinking. Truth needs no consideration. If you wish to denounce this man-her look said she did-then now is the time. She gave him a sharp glance, the first she had bestowed upon him since leaving Miss Althorpe's. You are no doctor, she declared. Are you a police officer? I am a detective. "'Oh!' and she hesitated for a moment, shrinking from him, with very natural distrust and aversion. "'I have been in the toils then without knowing it. No wonder I am caught. "'But I am no criminal, sir, and if you are the one most in authority here, "'I beg the privilege of a few words with you before I am put into confinement.' "'I will take you before the superintendent,' said Mr. Gryce. "'But do you wish to go alone?' Shall not mr Van Burnham accompany you? Mr Van Burnham? Is it not he you wish to denounce? I do not wish to denounce any one to day. What do you wish? asked mr Gryce. Let me see the man who has power to hold me here or let me go, and I will tell him. Very well, said mr Gryce, and led her into the presence of the superintendent. She was at this moment quite a different person from what she had been in the carriage all that was girlish in her aspect or appealing in her bearing had faded away evidently for ever and left in its place something at once so desperate and so deadly that she seemed not only a woman but one of a very determined and dangerous nature her manner however was quiet and it was only in her eye that one could see how near she was to frenzy She spoke before the superintendent could address her. "'Sir,' said she, "'I have been brought here on account of a fearful crime "'I was unhappy enough to witness. "'I myself am innocent of that crime, "'but, so far as I know, "'there is no other living person "'save the guilty man who committed it "'who can tell you how or why "'or by whom it was done. "'One man has been arrested for it "'and another has not.' if you will give me two weeks of complete freedom i will point out to you which is the veritable man of blood and may heaven have mercy on his soul she is mad signified the superintendent in by-play to mr gryce but the latter shook his head she was not mad yet i know she continued without a hint of timidity which seemed natural to her under other circumstances That this must seem a presumptuous request from one like me, but it is only by granting it that you will ever be able to lay your hands on the murderer of mrs Van Burnham. For I will never speak if I cannot speak in my own way and at my own time. The agonies I have suffered must have some compensation, otherwise I should die of horror and my grief. And how do you hope to gain compensation by this delay? expostulated the superintendent would you not meet with more satisfaction in denouncing him here and now before he can pass another night in fancied security but she only repeated i have said two weeks and two weeks i must have two weeks in which to come and go as i please two weeks and no argument they could advance succeeded in eliciting from her any other response or in altering in any way her air of quiet determination with its underlying suggestion of frenzy. Acknowledging their mutual defeat by a look, the superintendent and detective drew off to one side, and something like the following conversation took place between them. You think she's sane? I do. And will remain so two weeks? If humoured. You are sure she is implicated in this crime? She was a witness to it. And that she speaks the truth when she declares that she is the only person who can point out the criminal? Yes. That is, she is the only one who will do it. The attitude taken by the Van Burnhams, especially by Howard just now in the presence of this girl, shows how little we have to expect from them. Yet you think they know as much as she does about it? i do not know what to think for once i am baffled superintendent every passion which this woman possesses was roused by her unexpected meeting with howard van Burnham, and yet their indifference when confronted as well as her present action seems to argue a lack of connection between them which overthrows at once the theory of his guilt was it the sight of franklin then which really affected her and was her apparent indifference at meeting him only an evidence of her self-control? It seems an impossible conclusion to draw, and indeed there are nothing but hitches and improbable features in this case. Nothing fits, nothing jibes. I get just so far in it, and then I run up against a wall. Either there is a superhuman power of duplicity in the persons who contrived this murder, or we are on the wrong tack altogether. In other words, you have tried every means known to you, to get at the truth of this matter, and failed? I have, sir, sorry as I may be to acknowledge it. Then we must accept her terms. She can be shadowed? Every moment. Very well, then. Extreme cases must be met by extreme measures. We will let her have her swing, and see what comes of it. Revenge is a great weapon in the hands of a determined woman, and from her look I think she will make the most of it. And returning to where the young girl stood, the superintendent asked her whether she felt sure the murderer would not escape in the time that must elapse before his apprehension. Instantly her cheek, which had looked as if it could never show color again, flushed a deep and painful scarlet, and she cried vehemently. If any hint of what is here passing should reach him, I should be powerless to prevent his flight. Swear, then, that my very existence shall be kept a secret between you two, or I will do nothing towards his apprehension, no, not even to save the innocent. We will not swear, but we will promise, returned the superintendent. And now, when may we expect to hear from you again? Two weeks from to-night as the clock strikes eight, be wherever I may chance to be at that hour, and see on whose arm I lay my hand. It will be that of the man who killed Mrs. Van Burnham. End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 A White Satin Gown The events just related did not come to my knowledge for some days after they occurred, but I have recorded them at this time, that I might in some way prepare you for an interview, which shortly after took place between myself and Mr. Grice. I had not seen him since our rather unsatisfactory parting in front of Miss Althorpe's house, and the suspense which I had endured in the interim made my greeting unnecessarily warm. But he took it all very naturally. "'You are glad to see me,' said he. "'Been wondering what has become of Miss Oliver?' well she is in good hands with mrs desberger in short a woman whom i believe you know with mrs desberger i was surprised why i have been looking every day in the papers for an account of her arrest no doubt he answered but we police are slow we are not ready to arrest her yet meanwhile you can do us a favor she wants to see you are you willing to visit her My answer contained but little of the curiosity and eagerness I really felt. I am always at your command. Do you wish me to go now? Miss Oliver is impatient, he admitted. Her fever is better, but she is in an excited condition of mind, which makes her a little unreasonable. To be plain, she is not quite herself, and while we still hope something from her testimony, we are leaving her very much to her own devices and do not cross her in anything you will therefore listen to what she says and if possible aid her in anything she might undertake unless it points directly towards self-destruction my opinion is that she will surprise you but you are becoming accustomed to surprises are you not thanks to you i am very well then i have but one more suggestion to make you are working for the police now, madam, and nothing that you see or learn in connection with this girl is to be kept back from us. Am I understood perfectly, but it is only proper for me to retort that I am not entirely pleased with the part you assign me. Could you not have left thus much to my good sense and not put it into so many words? Ah, madam, the case at present is too serious for risks of that kind. Mr van burnham's reputation to say nothing of his life depends upon our knowledge of this girl's secret surely you can stretch a point in a matter of so much moment i have already stretched several and i can stretch one more but i hope the girl won't look at me too often with those miserable appealing eyes of hers they make me feel like a traitor you will not be troubled by any appeal in them the appeal has vanished "'Something harder and even more difficult to meet is to be found in them now—wrath, purpose, and a desire for vengeance. She is not the same woman, I assure you.' "'Well,' I sighed, "'I am sorry. There is something about the girl that lays hold of me, and I hate to see such a change in her. "'Did she ask for me by name?' "'I believe so. I cannot understand her wanting me, but I will go.' and I won't leave her either till she shows me she is tired of me. I am as anxious to see the end of this matter as you are. Then, with some vague idea that I had earned a right to some show of confidence on his part, I added insinuatingly, I suppose you would feel the case settled when she almost fainted at the sight of the younger Mr. Van Burnham. The old ambiguous smile I remembered so well came to modify his brusque rejoinder. If she had been a woman like you, I should. But she is a deep one, Miss Butterworth, too deep for the success of a little ruse like mine. Are you ready? I was not, but it did not take me long to be so, and before an hour had elapsed I was seated in Mrs. Desberger's parlor in Ninth Street miss oliver was in and ere long made her appearance she was dressed in street costume i was prepared for a change in her and yet the shock i felt when i first saw her face must have been apparent for she immediately remarked you find me quite well miss butterworth for this i am partially indebted to you you were very good to nurse me so carefully "'Will you be still kinder and help me in a new matter "'which I feel quite incompetent to undertake alone?' "'Her face was flushed, her manner nervous, "'but her eyes had an extraordinary look in them, "'which affected me most painfully, "'notwithstanding the additional effect it gave to her beauty. "'Certainly,' said I, "'what can I do for you?' "'I wish to buy me a dress,' "'was her unexpected reply. "'A handsome dress.' Do you object to showing me the best shops? I am a stranger in New York. More astonished than I can express, but carefully concealing it in remembrance of the caution received from Mr. Grice, I replied that I would be only too happy to accompany her on such an errand, upon which she lost her nervousness and prepared at once to go out with me. I would have asked Mrs. Desberger, she observed, while fitting on her gloves, but her taste' here she cast a significant look about the room' is not quite enough for me. I should think not, I cried. I shall be a trouble to you, the girl went on, with a gleam in her eye that spoke of the restless spirit within. I have many things to buy, and they must all be rich and handsome. If you have money enough, there will be no trouble about that. Oh, I have money she spoke like a millionaire's daughter shall we go to arnold's as i always traded at arnold's i readily acquiesced and we left the house but not before she had tied a very thick veil over her face if we meet any one do not introduce me she begged i cannot talk to people you may rest easy i assured her at the corner she stopped is there any way of getting a carriage she asked do you want one yes i signaled the hack now for the dress she cried we rode at once to arnold's what kind of a dress do you want i inquired as we entered the store an evening one a white satin i think i could not help the exclamation which escaped me but i covered it up as quickly as possible by a hurried remark in favor of white and we proceeded at once to the silk counter "'I will trust it all to you,' she whispered in an odd choked tone, as the clerk approached us. "'Get what you would for your daughter. No, no, for Mr. Van Burnham's daughter, if he has one, and do not spare expense. I have five hundred dollars in my pocket.' "'Mr. Van Burnham's daughter! Well, well, a tragedy of some kind was portending, but I bought the dress.' "'Now,' said she, "'lace and whatever else I need to make it up suitably. "'And I must have slippers and gloves. "'You know what a young girl requires to make her look like a lady. "'I want to look so well that the most critical eye "'will detect no fault in my appearance. "'It can be done, can it not, Miss Butterworth? "'My face and figure will not spoil the effect, will they?' "'No,' said I. "'You have a good face and a beautiful figure. "'You ought to look well.' Are you going to a ball, my dear? I am going to a ball, she answered, but her tone was so strange the people passing us turned to look at her. Let us have everything sent to the carriage, said she, and went with me from counter to counter with her ready purse in her hand, but not once lifting her veil to look at what was offered us, saying over and over as I sought to consult her in regard to some article, by the richest, I leave it all to you had mr gryce not told me she must be humoured i could never have gone through this ordeal to see a girl thus expend her hoarded savings on such frivolities was absolutely painful to me and more than once i was tempted to decline any further participation in such extravagance but a thought of my obligations to mr gryce restrained me and i went on spending the poor girl's dollars WITH MORE PAIN TO MYSELF THAN IF I HAD TAKEN THEM OUT OF MY OWN POCKET. HAVING PURCHASED ALL THE ARTICLES WE THOUGHT NECESSARY, WE WERE TURNING TOWARDS THE DOOR WHEN MISS OLIVER WHISPERED, WAIT FOR ME IN THE CARRIAGE FOR JUST A FEW MINUTES. I HAVE ONE MORE THING TO BUY AND I MUST DO IT ALONE. BUT, I BEGAN, I WILL DO IT AND I WILL NOT BE FOLLOWED, SHE INSISTED IN A SHRILL TONE THAT MADE ME JUMP and seeing no other way of preventing a scene i let her leave me though it cost me an anxious fifteen minutes when she rejoined me as she did at the expiration of that time i eyed the bundle she held with decided curiosity but i could make no guess at its contents now she cried as she reseated herself and closed the carriage door where shall we find a dressmaker able and willing to make up this satin in five days i could not tell her but after some little search we succeeded in finding a woman who engaged to make an elegant costume in the time given her the first measurements were taken and we drove back to ninth street with a lasting memory in my mind of the cold and rigid form of miss oliver standing up in madame's triangular parlor submitting to the mechanical touches of the modiste with an outward composure but with a brooding horror in her eyes that bespoke an inward torment end of chapter thirty eight chapter thirty nine of that affair next door this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you today by Dawn Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green Chapter 39 The Watchful Eye As I parted with Miss Oliver on Mrs. Desberger's stoop, and did not visit her again in that house, I will introduce the report of a person better situated than myself, to observe the girl during the next few days that the person thus alluded to was a woman in the service of the police is evident and as such may not meet with your approval but her words are of interest as witness friday p m party went out to-day in company with an elderly female of respectable appearance said elderly female wears puffs and moves with great precision i say this in case her identification should prove necessary I had been warned that Miss O. would probably go out, and as the man set to watch the front door was on duty, I occupied myself during her absence, in making a neat little hole in the partitions between our two rooms, so that I should not be obliged to offend my next-door neighbor by too frequent visits to her apartment. This done, I awaited her return, which was delayed till it was almost dark when she did come in her arms were full of bundles these she thrust into a bureau drawer with the exception of one which she laid with great care under her pillow i wondered what this one could be but could get no inkling from its size or shape her manner when she took off her hat was fiercer than before and a strange smile which i had not previously observed on her lips added force to her expression but it paled after supper-time, and she had a restless night. I could hear her walk the floor long after I thought it prudent on my part to retire, and at intervals through the night I was disturbed by her moaning, which was not that of a sick person, but of one very much afflicted in mind. Saturday. Party quiet. Sits most of the time with hands clasped on her knee before the fire given to quick starts as if suddenly awakened from an absorbing train of thought. A pitiful object, especially when seized by terror, as she is at odd times. No walks, no visitors to-day. Once I heard her speak some words in a strange language, and once she drew herself up before the mirror in an attitude of so much dignity, I was surprised at the fine appearance she made. The fire of her eyes at this moment was remarkable. I should not be surprised at any move she might make. Sunday. She has been writing to-day, but when she had filled several pages of letter-paper, she suddenly tore them all up and threw them into the fire. Time seems to drag with her, for she goes every few minutes to the window from which a distant church clock is visible, and sighs as she turns away more writing in the evening, and some tears. But the writing was burned as before, and the tears stopped by a laugh that augurs little good to the person who called it up. The package has been taken from under her pillow and put in some place not visible from my spy-hole. Monday. Party out again today. Gone some two hours or more. When she returned she sat down before the mirror and began dressing her hair. She has fine hair, and she tried arranging it in several ways. None seemed to satisfy her, and she tore it down again and let it hang till supper time, when she wound it up in its usual simple knot. Mrs. Desberger spent some minutes with her, but their talk was far from confidential, and therefore uninteresting. I wish people would speak louder when they talk to themselves. Tuesday. Great restlessness on the part of the young person I am watching. No quiet for her, no quiet for me. Yet she accomplishes nothing, and as yet has furnished me no clue to her thoughts. A huge box was brought into the room to night. It seemed to cause her dread rather than pleasure, for she shrank at the sight of it, and has not yet attempted to open it. But her eyes have never left it since it was set down on the floor it looks like a dressmaker's box but why such emotion over a gown wednesday this morning she opened the box but did not display its contents i caught one glimpse of a mass of tissue paper and then she put the cover on again and for a good half hour sat crouching down beside it shuddering like one in an ague fit i began to feel there was something deadly in the box her eyes wandered towards it so frequently and with such contradictory looks of dread and savage determination. When she got up, it was to see how many more minutes of the wretched day had passed. Thursday-party sick, did not try to leave her bed. Breakfast brought up by mrs Desberger, who showed her every attention, but could not prevail upon her to eat. Yet she would not let the tray be taken away. And when she was alone again or thought herself alone, she let her eyes rest so long on the knife lying across the plate that I grew nervous and could hardly restrain myself from rushing into the room. But I remembered my instructions and kept still even when I saw her hand steal towards this possible weapon, though I kept my own on the bell rope which fortunately hung at my side. She looked quite capable of wounding herself with the knife but after balancing it a moment in her hand, she laid it down again and turned with a low moan to the wall. She will not attempt death till she has accomplished what is in her mind. Friday. All is right in the next room. That is, the young lady is up, but there is another change in her appearance since last night. She has grown contemptuous of herself, and indulges in less brooding but her impatience at the slow passage of time continues and her interest in the box is even greater than before she does not open it however only looks at it and lays her trembling hand now and then on the cover saturday a blank day party dull and very quiet her eyes begin to look like ghastly hollows in her pale face she talks to herself continually but in a low mechanical way exceedingly wearing to the listener, especially as no word can be distinguished. Tried to see her in her own room today, but she would not admit me. Sunday. I have noticed from the first a Bible laying on one end of her mantel shelf. Today she noticed it also and impulsively reached out her hand to take it down. But at the first word she read she gave a low cry and hastily closed the book and put it back later however she took it again and read several chapters the result was a softening in her manner but she went to bed as flushed and determined as ever monday she has walked the floor all day she has seen no one and seems scarcely able to contain her impatience she cannot stand this long tuesday my surprises began in the morning as soon as her room had been put in order miss o locked the door and began to open her bundles first she unrolled a pair of white silk stockings which she carefully but without any show of interest laid on the bed then she opened a package containing gloves they were white also and evidently of the finest quality then a lace handkerchief was brought to light slippers an evening fan and a pair of fancy pins and lastly she opened the mysterious box and took out a dress so rich in quality and of such simple elegance it almost took my breath away it was white and made of the heaviest satin and it looked as much out of place in that shabby room as its owner did in the moments of exaltation of which i have spoken though her face was flushed when she lifted out the gown it became pale again when she saw it lying across her bed indeed a look of passionate abhorrence characterized her features as she contemplated it and her hands went up before her eyes and she reeled back uttering the first words i have been able to distinguish since i have been on duty they were violent in character and seemed to tear their way through her lips almost without her volition it is hate i feel nothing but hate ah if it were only duty that animated me Later she grew calmer, and covering up the whole paraphernalia with a stray sheet she had evidently laid by for the purpose, she sent for Mrs. Desberger. When that lady came in she met her with a wan but by no means dubious smile, and ignoring with quiet dignity the very evident curiosity with which that good woman surveyed the bed, she said appealingly, "You have been so kind to me, Mrs. Desberger, that I am going to tell you a secret. Will it continue to remain a secret, or shall I see it in the faces of all my fellow boarders tomorrow?" You can imagine Mrs. Desberger's reply, also the manner in which it was delivered, but not Miss Oliver's secret. She uttered it in these words: "I am going out tonight, Mrs. Desberger. I am going into great society. I am going to attend Miss Althorpe's wedding then as the good woman stammered out some words of surprise and pleasure she went on to say i do not want any one to know it and i would be so glad if i could slip out of the house without any one seeing me i shall need a carriage but you will get one for me will you not and let me know the moment it comes i am shy of what folks say and besides as you know i am neither happy nor well if i do go to weddings and have new dresses, and she nearly broke down but collected herself with wonderful promptitude, and with a coaxing look that made her almost ghastly, so much it seemed out of accord with her strained and unnatural manner. She raised the corner of the sheet, saying, I will show you my gown if you will promise to help me quietly out of the house, which of course produced the desired effect upon Mrs. Desberger that woman's greatest weakness being her love of dress. So from that hour I knew what to expect, and after sending precautionary advices to police headquarters, I set myself to watch her prepare for the evening. I saw her arrange her hair and put on her elegant gown, and was as much startled by the result as if I had not had the least premonition that she only needed rich clothes to look both beautiful and distinguished the square parcel she had once hidden under her pillow was brought out and laid on the bed and when mrs desberger's low knock announced the arrival of the carriage she caught it up and hid it under the cloak she hastily threw about her mrs desberger came in and put out the light but before the room sank into darkness i caught one glimpse of miss oliver's face Its expression was terrible beyond anything I had ever seen on any human countenance. End of chapter 39 Chapter 40 As the Clock Struck I do not attend weddings in general, but great as my suspense was in reference to Miss Oliver, I felt that I could not miss seeing Miss Althorpe married. I had ordered a new dress for the occasion, and was in the best of spirits, as i rode to the church in which the ceremony was to be performed the excitement of a great social occasion was for once not disagreeable to me nor did i mind the crowd though it pushed me about rather uncomfortably till an usher came to my assistance and seated me in a pew which i was happy to see commanded a fine view of the chancel i was early but then i always am early and having ample opportunity for observation i noted every fine detail of ornamentation with approval miss althorpe's taste being of that fine order which always falls short of ostentation her friends are in very many instances my friends and it was no small part of my pleasure to note their well-known faces among the crowd of those that were strange to me that the scene was brilliant and that silks satins and diamonds abounded goes without saying at last the church was full and the hush which usually precedes the coming of the bride was settling over the whole assemblage when i suddenly observed in the person of a respectable-looking gentleman seated in a side pew the form and features of mr grice the detective this was a shock to me yet what was there in his presence there to alarm me might not miss althorpe have accorded him this pleasure out of pure goodness of her heart i did not look at anybody else however after once my eyes fell upon him but continued to watch his expression which was non-committal though a little anxious for one engaged in a purely social function the entrance of the clergyman and the sudden peal of the organ in the well-known wedding march recalled my attention to the occasion itself, and as at that moment the bridegroom stepped from the vestry to await his bride at the altar, I was absorbed by his fine appearance and the air of mingled pride and happiness with which he watched the stately approach of the bridal procession. But suddenly there was a stir through the whole glittering assemblage, and the clergyman made a move and the bridegroom gave a start, and the sound, slight as it was, of moving feet grew still, and I saw advancing from the door on the opposite side of the altar a second bride, clad in white and surrounded by a long veil which completely hid her face. A second bride! And the first was halfway up the aisle, and only one bridegroom stood ready. The clergyman, who seemed to have as little command of his faculties, as the rest of us tried to speak, but the approaching woman upon whom every regard was fixed forestalled him by an authoritative gesture. Advancing towards the chancel, she took her place on the spot reserved for Miss Althorpe. Silence had filled the church up to this moment, but at this audacious move a solitary wailing cry of mingled astonishment and despair went up behind us. But before any of us could turn, and while my own heart stood still, for I thought I recognized this veiled figure, the woman at the altar raised her hand and pointed towards the bridegroom. Why does he hesitate? she cried. Does he not recognize the only woman with whom he dare face God and man at the altar? Because I am already his wedded wife, and have been so for five long years, does this make my wearing of this veil amiss? when he a husband unreleased by the law dares enter this sacred place with the hope and expectation of a bridegroom it was ruth oliver who spoke i recognized her voice as i had recognized her apparel but the emotions aroused in me by her presence and the almost incredible claims she advanced were lost in the horror inspired by the man she thus vehemently accused No lost spirit from the pit could have shown a more hideous commingling of the most terrible passions known to man than he did in the face of this terrible arraignment. And if Ella Althorpe, cowering in her shame and misery halfway up the aisle, saw him in all his depravity at that instant as I did, nothing could have saved her long-cherished love from immediate death. Yet he tried to speak it is false he cried all false the woman i once called wife is dead dead olive randolph murderer she exclaimed the blow struck in the dark found another victim and pulling the veil from her face ruth oliver advanced to his side and laid her trembling hand with a firm and decisive movement on his arm was it her words her touch or the sound of the clock striking eight in the great tower over our heads which so totally overwhelmed him as the last stroke of the hour which was to have seen him united with miss althorpe died out in the odd spaces above him he gave a cry such as i am sure never resounded between those sacred walls before and sank in a heap on the spot where but a few minutes previous he had lifted his head in all the glow and pride of a prospective bridegroom End of chapter forty